welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by Citico, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from Citico, and this is the final of our short run looking at issues around rough sleeping. This time we're talking about spice, and I'm talking to doctors Oliver Sutcliffe and Rob Ralphs from Manchester Met University, who've become known as national experts over the past few months. To start with the obvious, what's spice? Um, so, spice is a, uh, a synthetic drug, so it's, that means that it's been prepared in a laboratory, um, unlike uh, being sort of grown like uh, marijuana is. And what it is, is it's a, uh, a chemical which affects the brain, um, and it reacts with uh, little receptors in the brain which are associated with uh, stimulating pleasure and, uh, or pain. Um, and in, depending on the, the, ke- the, sp- the specific chemical, um, it's basically, um, they, are, they react differently in the brain and can produce different effects. A little bit like keys into locks. Um, so the, if the, the key fits into the lock more efficiently, then potentially the effects can be more pronounced. So, for example, that leads to some of the catatonic states that we've seen um, around the city um, where there have been a very extreme reaction to these chemicals. So is it a very broad name for a family of substances? Yeah, it's, I think the best way to make the analogy would be that we call um, a vacuum cleaner a hoover, but there are many different brands of hoover out there. So spice is a blanket term for many different uh, chemicals that could be potentially present in these uh, blends that are being used um, in the rough sleeping community and also in prisons. And is that one of the issues, that you're never quite sure what chemicals are going to be involved? Uh, yes, very true. I mean, there, there are, um, there's potentially about 400 different chemical, different chemical compounds which are known as these synthetic cannabinoids, which is the chemical, uh, the technical term for spice. Um, and they can change very subtly in terms of their, their chemical structure, so the, how the atoms or the, the molecule is made up. Um, and, but in recent times, since the, the change in legislation and the ban and they're becoming classified under the Misuse of Drugs Act, um, we've seen um, probably about eight uh, distinct specific chemicals, but they can actually appear potentially different um, in different combinations um, and also different levels of potency. So it is pretty much like playing Russian roulette because all of the samples themselves actually now look visually identical, but they could be potentially completely different. And how is it usually taken? Most people would still smoke it, suggesting how they would how they would with cannabis, so they'll put it in, in a joint and mix it with tobacco. Or increasingly, the tolerance can build up. So when users first begin to use it, they would talk about maybe getting 30 or 40 joints out of one gram. You know, some of the outreach work we've done with homeless users in the last six months or so, you know, you would see some people get a half a gram back and put the whole bag in a joint. Um, but then it can be used, especially when we was doing research in the prison about 18 months ago, people were using it on bongs, um, smoking it on pipes as well. But most people would, would mix it with tobacco, similar to how they would with traditional cannabis. So uh, if you're walking down the street and see someone smoking what you might think is a classical joint, these days it's just as likely, if not more likely, that it's going to be spice that they're smoking? I wouldn't say it's, it's as likely or just as likely. I mean, I suppose if you look at the, the Crime Survey of England and Wales, for example, they would estimate around about 18% of, of young people have used cannabis in the last year. The last time they asked about synthetic cannabinoids, such as spice, it's something like 0.01%. 
Um, so it's only within certain groups, within the prison population, um, within kind of rough sleeping, homeless community. Um, so some of the more vulnerable groups in society that tend to be using it. You know, some estimates would say, you know, as high as kind of 90% in the prison system. And again, you know, within rough sleepers as well. So it's, it's used for a particular function and by particular groups. Um, and then most people, I guess, hadn't heard of Spice even a year ago, I would think, 18 months ago. Um, so why has it so recently become a problem, become a news story, uh, blown up as an issue? I think within the, the prison system, the prison system first started to kind of document this in, in the 2004 annual review. And I think if you speak to people who've been in prison, they say it's been around since about 2011, 2012. Um, but the prisons, you know, the prison staff only started to kind of identify it a year or two after. And of course, lots of people who leave prison, they'll, they'll go into temporary accommodation, they leave the prison system with no fixed abode. So many of those prison population will end up on the streets. We have around about 90,000 people in, in prison. Um, and quite often they're using spice in prison, they're being introduced to it in the prison system and then they'll come out into temporary accommodation or even become homeless. And because of the kind of tolerance of it, um, you know, they will continue using that when they're in the community. And I think what we've seen in, in Manchester, and I suppose that the headlines that we've seen in March with the first incidents and the first mention of, you know, the walking dead and, and zombies and people being in a kind of frozen catatonic state, was in March, and then we had the incidences in, in April where we had, I think, there's 58 police call-outs in, in the one weekend. And that's what hit all the kind of local and national, I think even international news stories. And I think what we're seeing in Manchester, the 2016 Psychoactive Substances Act came in, into force on the 26th of May, 2016. Um, and before that, you could purchase spice and, and other new psychoactive substances or, or legal highs in high street shops, in news agents, um, some of the main head shops. Uh, and I think in, in Manchester, some of those main head shops, one was, you know, down Berry Old Road, just past H&P Manchester, you know, others were in Northern Quarter, some were in the village and dotted about in news agents along all over Manchester. And what we've seen since then, the, the acts aim to close those shops down um, and, you know, prohibited the sale of those in-hand high street shops and websites. So Spice has moved on to the, the street market um, very much kind of targeted the homeless community who were using that. And I think when you look at Manchester and why Manchester has had such a um, kind of focus in the media is because if you look at, you know, um, if people are kind of rough sleeping and they're trying to get money, they typically they will, they will beg for money. They're going to beg in the areas where there's a high footfall. And those areas will tend to be around Piccadilly Gardens, Market Street. Um, so you've got the trans main transport hubs, people coming from Piccadilly train station, the main metro stops in Piccadilly Gardens. You've got Piccadilly bus station as well. So they'll naturally set up there for begging. So the dealers are going to target where the beggars are, and they're going to target that area. So way you know you would you still had an increase in police in, um, call outs, ambulance call outs for the previous year or two in Manchester, but it was hidden down back streets. It was you know near HMP Manchester. It was dotted all over, and now it's kind of pushed everything, it condensed everything into one very visible open space around Piccadilly Gardens. So you've got the drug dealing, you know, you've got the drug use, and it's all. You know, it's all kind of magnified, really, because it's out in the open. So somebody's not kind of passing out down a back street; they're passing out in Piccadilly Gardens. And 
So I think the, the problem and the kind of level of use what we're seeing now has been around for the last year or two, um, but it's just become very visible. Um, and I think also combined with the, the social um, impacts as well, you've also got um, how the impact of the government's legislation on controlling certain classes of compounds. So as, as before the Psychoactives Act came in to force, a lot of the law enforcement was banning compounds as they appeared. And that would then, and what would happen is, is that as you closed off those avenues, especially in the synthetic cannabinoid uh, class of compounds, they started to move into different areas. And I think where we've ended up here with the current uh, group of compounds, even though they are controlled under legislation, they just have to, they are currently a very, very potent, very, very dangerous and unpredictable class. So I think that's another part of the story that it's not just um, that all synthetic cannabinoids are obviously harmful but it seems that the current ones that are circulating seem to have significantly more adverse effects um, which are much more pronounced and 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 this not just in in Manchester, this has been seen across the, uh, the world where you've seen the compounds been circulating in these sort of vulnerable communities and luckily we, you know, when we haven't had the, the effects um, where we've had the, you know, in, say for example in Japan and also in Brooklyn there have been deaths which have been quite, you know, widespread. Um, you know, we haven't had um, as many publicised, you know, adverse reactions and that's probably due to the fact that the police and the emergency services, um, because it's very visual in, in the city centre, in Piccadilly Gardens, the police, the emergency services and also the general public are taking are being proactive and they're, they're actually helping the individuals when they see people collapse and i think that activity has probably safeguarded lives because people have not been left to just lie there potentially unconscious and then potentially uh, so, so for people's health actually being further out in the public because that's where you have to be to beg actually may benefit them if they do have a collapse at that point they'll get seen yeah, they're more likely to be seen and somebody to call 999 and call emergency services than, than if they were, you know, hidden, you know, in a car park or in some kind of back alleyway somewhere. And since the um, Psychoactive Substances Act as well, I mean, has, presumably the, the price has changed? Has it, has it become illegal? Has it become more expensive? Not what we expected. So, I mean, the... The closest sort of new psychoactive substance are, are legal high, which we could kind of comparing, I suppose, was with the methadrone, which was popular in 2009 amongst kind of clubbers and what can use recreationally as a kind of substitute for, for ecstasy or MDMA. And that was kind of widely available around about £10 a gram. And then it became a, a Class B, controlled Class B substance under Misuse of Drugs Act. And most people then reported that the price doubled to £20 a gram. So in, in the head shops and the, and the news agents, Spice was available for £10 a gram. And what we expected to happen was it would double in price, similar to what happened with methadone, to £20 a gram. You know, anybody who's kind of ever kind of purchased any, any drugs, whether it's cocaine or ecstasy or ketamine, would know that a gram is never a gram. So usually a dealer might sell what's a gram, but not 0.3 of that gram is the actual snapback, you know, and maybe, so you're probably lucky to get 0.7. So we assume the same, you know, maybe people would be selling what was a gram, but 
when it's in the head shops, a gram was a gram. So a street gram maybe wouldn't be a gram. So if somebody was smoking two grams a day, they maybe cost 20 pounds from a head shop. Um, to get two grams, they might actually have to purchase three grams if they were working on that kind of ratio of 0.7 a gram. Um, and then also, you know, if it's £20 a gram, so what was costing them £20 a gram may actually cost, you know, £60 on the street price. That's what we kind of anticipated would happen. And then again, to, you know, to fund a £60 a day habit, people would have to commit more acquisitive crime, shoplifting, etc. Um, but what we found, I think that initially happens, but now it's kind of stabilised and, um, you know, Oliver's been involved in a kind of chemical analysis part of that process is actually weighing the bag so somebody has a kind of hands in a, a, a snap bag when and, and the average weight is around about half a gram half a gram and it's going for five pound a snap bag so basically the same kind of price ten pound ten pound a gram mm. and and how expensive is it to make and what are the sort of profits that are being made from making it um well i mean obviously the the substances themselves are are not available through obviously the the normal channels that they were available. <laughs> well, I was meaning more. <laughs> I was meaning more the fact that through the internet and and, and through the head shops because obviously you could used to you used to be able to buy the the raw materials um, and then be able to potentially produce your own smoking blends um, before the the ban. Obviously, that's now gone. Um, they're still available to buy online but they would be obviously from from Europe um, and obviously then you even though the Psychoactive Substances Act makes the act of importing these illegal um, potentially the volume of, of traffic in terms of uh, post coming across the, the border that it's unlikely that everyone every package is going to be opened now we've done some back of a back of a fag packet calculations and and we're working on the assumption that maybe about if you were to to buy um a, a couple of say two grams of uh, of of synthetic cannabinoid to raw material that would probably cost you about a fiver maybe uh, you know something like that that would be enough to manufacture that you know if we look at the the current potencies we're seeing about two percent so that means that out of two grams you could potentially make um about a thousand packets okay uh, no sorry a hundred packets hundred packets um if you then split those into a uh, hundred packets into half a gram packets you've got 200 bags 200 bags at five pounds a bag is a thousand pounds you've put an outlay of five quid and that's basically, you've made pretty much, um, you know, 200% profit. If that, is that right? I'm not very good no, with my that, yeah, Maybe a little <laughs> bit more. Considerably more. Considerably more. Uh, sorry, yeah, math is not my strong suit. Um, but you can see that the markups are significant and that's assuming, I mean, theoretically, if someone was to be buying um, the raw materials, they wouldn't just buy two grams. They might potentially buy, um, take the risk, might not take the risk of, like, if, what happens if that one, that one sample got in, intercepted? So if you take the assumption that they're going to basically take, um, they're going to buy, say, it from five people, five, five online suppliers, and then take it, you know, even if they only got a, um, a 10% or a 20% sort of success rate to get them through, they're still going to make a significant profit based on their um, their original outlay. So I think that's why it becomes very attractive to the, you know, the organised criminals because 
if you there if you work out the how do you produce it the production is you could do it in a with a mixing bowl in the, in your front room you would not need a, a technical laboratory um and also um there has been obviously comments that have said well you know potentially cannabis you know, you know that if legalized cannabis potentially, then this would stop spice production. Um, but because of the the economies, you know, no one's going to want to potentially go through all of the risks and the, the cost and the time that it takes to build make a grow of cannabis compared to potentially um, manufacturing the same quantity of spice. So I think, in principle, you know, it's a very attractive drug of choice. Plus, also that linked into the community, the vulnerable communities and the individuals they're targeting um, means that they're, 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 um, the, the, the people that they're targeting need these some substances because of the situation they're in. They're trying to obviously uh, blank out the fact that the situation they're in, whether they're in prison or whether they're in uh, rough sleeping, and therefore they've almost got um, a cornered market for these things. Um, so what... In the short term and the long term, has it been around long enough that we understand what it does to the body? Um, I think this comes back to the fact that it's a rapidly evolving, you know, as I said, there's 400 potential, you know, a minimum of about 400 known cannabinoids out there. Potentially, you know, some of those are well known. Um, some of them, you know, the way that the, the, the MPS market has always been, has been a, a very ebb and flow things are popular then and they come out then they lose popularity for for a number of reasons and then and that might potentially mean that um compounds drop off 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 the radar um if that was to happen then potentially those compounds wouldn't be studied by the teams looking into the sort of work to understand how they work because potentially they've they've dropped off um, and also the other thing is is that it's very difficult to actually work out how a substance will affect an individual because firstly we can't do clinical trials with with humans um, with these substances so how they react potentially in the laboratory under laboratory conditions is going to be different to out you know when someone actually takes them as a as a, as a um, illegally um, but also the other side of it is the effects uh, will vary from person to person. So depending on the chemical that they take, the potency of the drug, how they're taking it, and then factoring all the, the things about their, their age, their, their weight, their underlying health conditions, potentially you have um, so many variables, it's so difficult to actually ascertain and then um, say that drug X will work in way Y with person Z. Mm, and I suppose, on, but that, that said, you know, we do know that the impacts on people's kind of mental health um, is, you know, people get more agitated, lots of cases where people report being aggressive, aggressive behaviour. Um, and then again, you know, people talk about the addictiveness qualities. So many people that we speak to in the prison system are rough sleepers. You know, they've had a history of substance use dependency. And quite often they will talk about spice as being more addictive, more acute withdrawals. Um, they'll talk about, you know, being really kind of bad depression or psychosis or anxiety. So we do know it's linked to 
has certain kind of broad, broad effects, but as Oliver said, you know, depending on the strain and the potency. And one of the things, I suppose, with any kind of new substances, you know, it's one thing finding about how, how, how they actually work on their own, but it's how they interact with other substances like alcohol or medication. So again, lots of users, you know, will maybe be on antipsychotics and how it kind of reacts with them. So how they react with prescription medication, um, there might be poly drug users also using kind of heroin, cannabis, um, crack cocaine, alcohol. So there's there's still lots of kind of unknowns, but there's some kind of broad consistency in terms of the detrimental impact on users' kind of mental health um, and links to aggression, aggression, violence, and kind of addiction as well. Is there a method of detox? Well, suppose. Is it interesting is it because when you speak, sometimes when you speak to people who have, you know, they talk about being addicted or high buildup of tolerance and then they've come off it. And quite often, you know, the way they've come off it, they've self, self detox and a bit, you know, almost kind of like train spotting scenario when you say, what have you done? And it's, you know, I locked myself in a room with family sized packets of crisp and water. And sometimes people would use cannabis as skunk farms, strong cannabis to detox. Um, others have kind of had help from GPs or treatment services. So similar, you know, if you speak to most kind of treatment services, they would say similar to if it's coming off a detox from heroin or other substance, alcohol, you treat the symptoms. So you, you would treat symptoms, give them medication if they've got kind of stomach cramps or kind of withdrawing or to kind of reduce the temperature, alleviate the kind of sweat. So you would kind of, there's a kind of detox packs which people, people can be kind of provided with by drug treatment providers which will kind of, you know, have different things in there to treat the, the different symptoms. And again, some sort of Oliver was saying about the effects, some people will withdraw in, in different ways and have more acute stomach cramps. Or, um, so, so there certainly is, you know, similar to how you would treat any any other kind of detox from alcohol or, or heroin or, or crack cocaine. There's certain kind of medication. Uh, again, you know, when you speak to people, how they've actually kind of managed to come off something themselves. Um, you know, there's there's more than than one way, but there's some kind of consistent kind of treatment and medication that's available. Um, I mean, what, for people, I mean, you talked about the prison coming from uh, the problem coming from prison, particularly. Um, is the attraction there this this element of it just blanking you out and it just enabling you to just deal with a one two year sentence and, and not feel yeah. like you're there? There's a, there's a number of. I mean, when you speak to people in the prison system and in the community, they will say, if you speak to homeless people and you ask, you know, when did you first use it? The, the majority first started using when they were in the criminal justice system, so that's when they were introduced to it. Um, quite often, you know, they may have gone into prison as kind of cannabis users, heroin users, and then they couldn't actually get hold of, hold of those substances. Um, and again, they will talk about, you know, you have a couple of drags and the next thing you wake up and it's four hours have passed or six hours have passed. Um, I know they'll say it takes away the bars, you know, they're locked up in the cell for kind of 20 plus hours a day. Um, but also they would talk about, you know, say it makes a five-year sentence feel, feel like a year. And you hear this on the streets as well, people were saying, oh, been homeless for two years it feels like two months so it seems to have an ability to to make long periods of time seem to pass quicker so in terms of an, an ideal prison drug for example if you're doing a five-year prison sentence and it feels like five months or again if you're on the streets but also you know make you know, people just kind of be knocked out for a few hours um, but also people say they use it to get to sleep so 
people say it's the only thing that gets them to sleep in prison or if they're sleeping in a car park and they're worried about the safety, they have difficulty sleeping, they'll use spice to get to sleep. So it certainly seems to be, you know, it's, you say it's not used so much to chill out like cannabis, it's used to kind of block out the situation mm. that they're in. Um, what should people, businesses do if they see somebody obviously under the influence? Is there anything that individuals can do? Well, one of the things we've, we've been work, working with Manchester City Council and with Greater Manchester Police uh, is trying to look at how we reduce kind of blue light incidents. Um, so I think when we've had these kind of spates of, spates of incidents, I suppose there's always that danger if you see somebody collapsed, people, because it's so high profile at the moment, people automatically think it's spice. So sometimes I think we're in danger of maybe over-reporting or every time we see somebody collapse. You know, there's still lots of people who are using alcohol, lots of people are still using heroin and the traditional substances. And if we see somebody collapse, I think everybody's first thought now is how oh, they've been using, using spice. Um, I think, you know, we issued some guidance we worked together with the, with the local drugs um, information system, the early warning system, when we had the kind of spikes in, in incidents, which is kind of just kind of general kind of good practice of what to do if you see somebody and you suspect them of overdose. I mean, the ultimate thing is always call the emergency services, you know, if in doubt, but also trying to work with people to recognise and not, you know, not... Um, over rely on the emergency services as well. So the general principles of first aid, you know, if you've seen somebody, one of the first things you would you know, want to do is make sure somebody's in the recovery position because quite often I think people will see people who have vomited, you know, and be lying in a pool of sick. And one of the first things you want to ensure to the emergency services come is, you know, that they're not going to um, choke, for example. Uh, I think the concern what we're seeing with these people in this kind of frozen catatonic state was, you know, what do you do when you see somebody in that state? Do you move them? And, and there's lots of things about, you know, what should be kind of good practice and, and guidance. Um, and should you try to move them? Should you try and kind of shake somebody out of that? And some people would suggest that if you did try to move somebody, it could, you know, could induce kind of cardiac arrest. Uh, but then you speak to some users and some users have said, you know, actually they're still conscious in that state. And sometimes if you just give them a, a shake, they can come round. But then, you know, you hear reports of, you know, people trying to bring somebody around and then they wake up and they become aggressive. So mm-hmm. there's still a lack of kind of national kind of public health England kind of good practice in, in what to do. And that's the kind of thing we're trying to work at, develop our own kind of local um, good practice guidance. I think that's you know it's going to be quite alarming when somebody sees somebody in that state. Yeah, and I think also um, yeah because obviously if if say for example you've got businesses where potentially um, rough sleepers are sleeping in doorways and stuff, obviously the staff will obviously want to uh, will be getting to work. Security guards will be arriving and stuff, and and then obviously the shop needs to open for the, the general public. So you know it's as Rob says, it's it's about trying to to put in a uh, an awareness and a pra- and, and potentially some some good practice and some you know that would help um businesses being able to know how to deal with 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 incidents like this so that potentially they safeguard not only the the individuals that have taken the substance but also themselves and also their workers and the public generally um i think from a from a chemistry point of view i would say that that the good thing about the early warning system and how the city council and GMP have, have engaged is that rather than than taking a, a knee jerk reaction and, and 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 doing a little bit like the the brass eye 
cake situation of you know over egging over egging things is that what they've done is that any of the responses they have made have been backed up by the test the lab testing so that we know exactly what's circulating what sort of potencies they are and if we can start i mean if if we potentially know that there's a you know a rogues gallery that is very you know consistently moving around you know in the in the community in terms of the the chemicals and and we know the approximate percentages that these are maybe that we've got a we can start putting some meat on the bones about understanding that sort of how these things are affecting them and we might actually say well this class of compounds you know they affect people in this specific way and therefore we need to take this sort of proactive approach to maybe potentially help the individuals if they do collapse and they're sitting there and and uh, so it links into the safeguarding um by backing it up with the the, the science to actually know exactly what's what's that's happening um but I think also as well as it means that feeding the information, if someone, by doing the testing as well, it also means that, for example, what we've, we've shown with the lab testing is we can get, if a sample is received in the lab, we can usually get a turnaround within about an hour um, if, if, if we're... Um, yeah. So what we would see is that if someone potentially collapses and is hospitalised, so similar to the, the Alderman Rochdale situation where um, uh, even though it wasn't really a rough sleeping community, but there was hospitalisations associated with them taking the crystal form, which is actually the, the, the raw material of, of the, is made spice, that spice is made from, that information was able to be passed back to the hospital within a really rapid amount of time um, and it meant that they could organise the treatment and re-jig re the treatment so that the individuals recovered and everyone who had taken that did actually recover. So I think if we're able to do the testing and get it rapidly turned round because of where we're situated in certain terms of the city centre and the businesses associated with that, it means that potentially we can feed that information to the to the, the rapid response teams so that they know that if they that they can then potentially treat individuals either on the spot very quickly or potentially if they're hospitalized the the accident and emergency teams know exactly what they're dealing with because a lot of these substances they don't show up in the standard tests and it's important about that information being fed back to these people so that we can we can help uh, people who in, who are recovering and potentially detoxing much more effectively uh, is that one of, I mean, that suggests in terms of public policy that if you've got a substance that's continually changing and, and continually evolving, you need to continually evolve your advice as well in terms of what you're telling the public, what you're telling businesses and, and actually how you're, you're dealing with it. Yeah, I think it's an ongoing kind of monitoring process. And, you know, I think Manchester's had a lot of bad publicity, you know, linked to, to Spice in, in the last 12 months or so. And I think, you know, it's important to make clear that, you know, Manchester's kind of leading the way, I think. I mean, first of all, the Manchester City Council commissioned the research was to establish the, the prevalence and nature of new psychoactive substance use in Manchester. And then, you know, one of the criticisms of the government's um, Psychoactive Substances Act is that they haven't put any kind of measures or evaluation in place to look at how it's, it's worked. And Manchester you know, has had the foresight to commission further research to actually look at the impacts of the act. And one of the things we said at the end of the first stage of the research is if the government are successful and the head shops do stop selling this 
then we're not going to know what's actually in it because once it goes onto the street market, then it's much more likely to be adulterated. You know, for the most part, what it said on the back of the packages in the head shops was actually what was in there. So you're not going to get that on a clear snap, like you know, <laughs> a, a picture of Bob Marley or something. What we were we were finding on something. So you know, you're not going to get that kind of a, advice. So again, the the, the the council kind of supported us in terms of initiating the element of the drug testing that, that Oliver and his team have, have been doing as well. So again, you know, when people are saying what's in Spice at the moment, really kind of we know more in Manchester than we do in any other area in, in England and Wales. And again, the establishing the local drugs information system, the, the Spice alerts that we've had, um, some innovations in, in outreach and trying to engage this population in terms of multi-agency outreach where we're working with Greater Manchester Police, with Andy Costello, um, the neighbourhood police officer for the, for the city centre. We're also working with the treatment providers CGL and some of the main kind of homeless third sector organisations and going out and trying to actually do the out-targeted outreach with, the, with these users because they're not really kind of engaging in treatment services. So I think on a, on a national level, you know, Manchester is, is leading the way. Um, in terms of the response, really, and it, you know, it doesn't get the credit it deserves. It gets lots of kind of negative press, um, but the same situation, you know, is happening in, in other city centres, you know, in Cardiff, in, in Wrexham, in Birmingham, in, in Newcastle. Um, but I think because it's so visible in the Piccadilly Gardens area, um, and I suppose for me, one of the downsides is many advantages of having Media City on Salford Keys, but one of the downsides is that, you know, it's much easier for the national media to take the short trip to Piccadilly Gardens than it is to go to, to Birmingham or, or Newcastle as, yep. as well. So that also kind of intensifies the, the focus on Manchester. And I think the other side of it as well is that, you know, you've got the you've got that great combination of the fact that you've got, you know, the police and the city council have been very proactive in terms of rather than turning around and saying, it's just it's just a rough sleeping community, it'll pass, we'll ignore it. They've actually grabbed the ball by the horns and they've actually sought out experts in various, as, as Rob said, in, in, in third... Um, sort of third stream sort of, you know, charities and, and, and supports networks and also the academics as well to say, look, we've got to deal with this. Not one one, not one person can deal with this. We have to be uh, pulling together. Um, and that hasn't really happened in other cities. And that could be partly because the, the expertise isn't replicated across other cities. But I think other cities that are struggling from this, um, definitely Birmingham, um, the, the the police in Birmingham have, have been in contact with us, um, and and also speaking with um, with uh, with Andy Costello, the the, the the police officer that Rob met, and they've been asking us about sort of how we've done things, um, and I think that's good, and it's a good way of sharing the information that we've because we've asked them because there are things that they are issues that they have which are unique. Um, to them and it's about sort of spreading that information and sharing it so that we can all move forward in the same way rather than you know all move pulling in different directions um, to tackle this issue so and I think that's a fairly positive point on which to end I guess yes. um, where can people find more information about what you guys do um, or can they? Yeah. <laughs> All secret. <laughs> and I'm sure we can make, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the, the spice alerts and it's just a simple two-page inf information sheet. I'm sure we could make those available. I don't know if they could be 
we can certainly link to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Cisco site. Um, and again, you know, some kind of publications which we have here, and was kind of more interested in, in the science or some research that we've we published around you know what's happened in the prison system, for example. Um, so yeah, I mean, so we're if act, I, both actively <laughs> active on Twitter. So you what, know. what are your Twitter addresses? Uh, mine's um, so using the NATO alphabet, it'll be uh, at Sierra Uniform Tango Charlie Lima India. Foxtrot, Foxtrot, Echo, Oscar, Bravo. Okay. And mine is at Matt, MMU, out of it. And out of it is reference to the, to the substance use course that, that I teach. No, <laughs> reference to, that, <laughs> to, to my own present. state of consciousness. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I'd again, but you know, just via email, I'm sure if you, you know, maybe provide some links on the yeah, Citico our, we, we've website. We've got our websites through the university, which we're happy, more than happy to contact people through that. We'll provide some links on the show notes. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks to Rob and Oliver. Thank you. Um, and we'll doubtless be coming back to this subject in future podcasts. If you have any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future, you can talk to us on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR. Uh, we're available on all good podcast services at the moment, and we should be available on even more in the future. Leave us some likes or reviews. Until next time. Thank you.